You're listening to an encore edition of Studio Tulsa recorded earlier this year. Welcome to Studio Tulsa. I'm Rich Fisher. In her New York Times bestselling books, journalist and author Alexandra Robbins specializes in embedding with people in her subject area, be it high-achieving children, college students, nurses, as in her previous book, or public school teachers, as she has done for her latest book, The Teachers, A Year Inside America's Most Vulnerable, Important Profession. For the book, Robbins conducted scores of interviews, but focused on three teachers spread from coast to coast. Each teacher provides a dose of insight into the nationwide teacher shortage. Rebecca is a young elementary school teacher who's struggling with the knowledge that for her to do the job right, it virtually consumes every waking moment. Penny, a veteran middle school teacher, has mastered the classroom, but it's the poor leadership in the school and irritants outside of the classroom that wears on her. Miguel, a special ed teacher, is a wonder with his students, but his entire school is under assault from outside forces attempting to shortchange the education of the inner city population of the school. Alexandra Robbins is the author of eight nonfiction books and has written for Vanity Fair, The New Yorker, Atlantic, and Washington Post, among others, and won a National Magazine Award for Public Interest Journalism for an article on the shortage of nutrients for premature babies. And she joins us today on Studio Tulsa to speak about the teachers. Alexandra Robbins, uh, welcome to Studio Tulsa. Thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Rich. For your book, The Teachers, you followed three teachers over the course of a school year. Rebecca is an East Coast elementary teacher who's really struggling to find a balance between her all-consuming work and life. Penny is a middle school math teacher. She's a veteran teacher, sounds like a really awesome teacher, dealing with an inexperienced principal and staff dysfunction. And Miguel, a West Coast special ed teacher in a school that's being threatened by the district from outside forces. Uh, You spoke with many teachers during the course of your reporting and research. What was special about these three? Yeah, there were so many teachers I spoke to. I ended up interviewing hundreds. But I wanted the main characters' year-in-the-life stories to feel like the kind of story that readers could just sort of curl up with and lose themselves in. Um, so I wanted to make sure that the people I followed, which turned out to be Rebecca Penny and Miguel, had stories that were both captivating and relatable so that readers would want to root for them, that readers would enjoy reading about them, love the characters, and in that way, immerse themselves so deeply into the story that they would truly understand what it's like to be a teacher today. They're all dealing with different uh, demands. Rebecca has really good support from her school. Penny doesn't have great support. In fact, uh, administrators and other teachers trying to undermine her at times, and yet she is this master teacher just struggling in the trenches. And Miguel is has to become an advocate for his school because there are forces that are out to close it, and he seems to be a really, truly amazing special ed teacher. Yes, he is. All three of them are, are terrific teachers, and I think they sort of emblemize the way you think that a teacher just goes in and teaches for the day and then goes home and that's it for the day for them. And it's not. There are so many extra things that teachers have to deal with, even aside from all the grading and prepping that causes unpaid hours of work that they have to do late into the night. Yeah. uh, In the case of Penny and Rebecca, uh, Rebecca's finding that basically teaching is 
consuming her most of her waking hours uh, from the time she wakes up till the time she goes to bed. Penny is uh, actually in the midst of a failed marriage because her husband basically says that she's, you know, consumed by her work every day. And uh, besides being just a kind of an interesting guy. <laughs> that's, that's a euphemism. <laughs> Not a great guy. <laughs> but both yep. of them are, are, are really spending lots and lots of times out, outside of the classroom. And I guess that's one of the things you wanted to convey is criticisms of you have summers off, you... And the, and the summers are not really off. They're they're doing continuing education. They're preparing for the classroom. So I'm trying to just preparing to to teach a different class for the next year. It's really a full time job that involves lots of unpaid time in the evening. That's exactly right. In fact, it's more than a full time job. It's probably one and a half to two full time jobs that they're expected to fulfill within a school day. In fact, 70 percent of teachers have even had to work a second job either during the summer or during the year um, just to be able to make ends meet to afford to be a teacher in the first place. Well, as you began to follow these teachers through the course of a year, what were the things you were looking for? As, as far as following their story and, and getting to know them as a teacher and getting to know how they, they worked with their students, because I think that's some of the most inspirational part of the book is how they relate to their students first and then they teach them. Oh, thank you. Yeah, yeah. As characters, I was looking for people who would be relatable and, as I said, the kinds of people who, who readers would root for. But during their stories, after we had already begun, then... The style of writing that I do to make it feel like fiction requires a lot of detail and, and delving into not just what a person is doing or saying, but also their thoughts and their mindset as they're doing or saying those things, because people sometimes say things, say one thing and then but really are thinking another People I've followed as main characters for prior books and same as this one have said that our interviews often felt like free therapy. Um <laughs> Because they're there, we're talking about everything in their lives. These teachers, I got to tell you, well, you know, because you read it, these teachers did not hold back. Like you learn things about some of these teachers, especially Penny, that, uh, you know, you have friends who probably may not even have opened up that much to you about the specifics about their personal and, and professional lives. So they held nothing back. They gave very specific details about their professional and, and personal lives. And, uh, you know, it's a testament to them that they wanted to stand up in this way and, and represent teachers' voices. Well, the book provides a lot of inspiration about what teachers are doing today, but there's much that's incredibly distressing. And I have to say a lot of that involves parents, helicopter parents, consumer-oriented parents taking the approach uh, to teachers that they're just like the person serving them coffee in the morning or uh, a sense of ownership because they, quote, pay their salary, unquote. And I just found that so disheartening. And first of all, it's one thing that you treat people that way. And it's people that, you know, at one point we thought of education as a respected profession and you're disrespecting it so much. But at the same time, they're expecting teachers to take over a lot of parental responsibilities that they've completely abrogated. And uh, I found that incredibly distressing. Were you prepared yeah, for that? Yeah, there's a sense of entitlement. Yeah, were you prepared for that reaction? No, I would, I would say no. 
I knew, you know, to some extent there are some helicopter parents and they're going to say some some stuff like like, for example, Penny. Uh, there was a parent of twins who both had Penny for math. And that parent, Pe- Penny, ended up calling her you know, to me, not not to the parent, calling her helicopter because she would say things like um, she would text Penny all day. Oh, did you get Braden's homework out of his locker for him? <laughs> oh, how's my Addison doing today? She had a sore throat this morning. And then the, the the doozy is that, I mean, there were many doozies actually, but um, she sends an email to all of her twins' teachers uh, with her twins' sports schedules. And the twins were both athletes and they had more than one sport that season. And the email to the teachers said, my kids like it when their teachers attend their sports events. Uh, we would appreciate your attendance at all of the events on these schedules. And she sent their <laughs> their entire sports <laughs> schedules for the season. And Penny was thinking, you know, I I go to my own kids' games. <laughs> um, but anyway, that's the helicopter element. There's also a teacher blaming narrative that that is too common. And this is a this is another true story that I think encapsulates this, this mindset. Uh, one day after school, a Pennsylvania high school English teacher was walking to her car in the parking lot uh, after dismissal when a Mercedes rolled right into her. I mean, the car hit her. Um, luckily, she was uninjured. Uh, she sort of jumped back in surprise. But then the parent driver, who was still on her cell phone, lowered her window and yelled, stop touching my car. And that story to me really illustrates this culture of teacher blaming in which entitled parents are making ridiculous demands and then faulting teachers for not meeting them. They're driving their car into a teacher and then blaming the teacher for touching it. (laughs) (laughs) I was really struck by uh, the helicopter parrot you mentioned because uh, there was just recently a Saturday Night Live skit uh, during Weekend Update uh, where a mother's says, oh, my, my daughters, they're doctors. Oh, but my son, I love my son. And the son is like a, a you know, a loafer living at home at 32. And it was just kind of that sort of reminded me of the same thing. This, this parent is expecting the teacher to be a surrogate mother. Yeah, everything. Um, one teacher told me, um, he had to call up. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to say this, um, in cryptic-ish language. It had to call the parent because uh, her son was dropping F-bombs in class. And the parent's response, well, that's not my problem. It's your job to teach him effing manners. <laughs> what? <laughs> um, I'll give you another example. A Michigan parents said at a parent-teacher conference to a high school English teacher, we promised our son we'd buy him a car if he gets all A's and B's. Your class is the only class he's getting a C in, so it's your fault he can't get a car for his birthday. I mean, <laughs> come on. <laughs> well, this also points to another role that your book exposes, and that's that teachers today are expected to do much more than educating in subject matter. And that, that's always been the case to an extent. But today, you know, teaching basic social skills, counseling, I mean, the list goes on and on. Do the teachers that you interviewed, including the ones that you don't follow over the course of a school year, Mm -hmm. do they feel like they were equipped to to do this when they entered a classroom or even after years of teaching? Teachers are trained in academic instruction. There may be some training on social emotional learning. It's not that they don't feel like they could do it if they had the time and the hours. It's that they don't have the time and the hours, thanks to administrations and districts piling on unnecessary responsibilities on them, to even do their academic job in the first place. And then 
all these other things are put on their shoulders and they desperately want to do right by the kids. If a kid needs something, whether it be, you know, food because they don't have enough food at home or counseling because they need mental health help, you know, the teacher wants to be there for that child. But at the same time, as districts are saying things like, oh, mental health is so important, they're also cutting the budget. They're also cutting counselors and social workers and school psychologists from the budget. And so there's not proper support staff in place to fulfill these needs for students. I think one of your takeaways at the end of the book was the fact that, you know, there probably needs to be more teachers, well-trained teachers in the classroom. But more importantly, they need a strong support staff because of the state and federal mandates. They're spending so much time on data assessment, data reporting. They need administrative assistance. They need parateachers. They need counselors. They need librarians. They need all sorts of support people. In many districts, they just don't receive them. And even in the best districts, there's probably not enough of them. I don't think anybody has enough of them. You're absolutely right. And, you know, teachers say, you know, districts and administrators, they say, oh, we don't have the money. We don't have the money. They do have the money, but they're putting it into the wrong things. They're putting it into shiny new curricula that really isn't going to change anything. Or they're putting it into central office bloat. They're hiring more administrators at the district level position, you know, in the central office that no student ever sees. They have the money to get this support staff and to give the support staff benefits so they actually want to come um, be in this job. They're just not prioritizing that. My guest today is Alexandra Robbins. She's an investigative journalist, and her latest book is titled The Teachers, A Year Inside America's Most Vulnerable, Important Profession. It's published by Dutton. She's my guest today on Studio Tulsa. Well, you know, I, you wrote right at the, pretty early in the book, at some point, the expectations and responsibilities foisted on teachers expanded beyond teaching. Exhaustive, relentless selflessness be, some, somehow became part of the unspoken job description. And given the pay, the lack of respect from the community, sometimes from the administration, from legislators and from parents, is it any surprise we have a teacher shortage in your view? No, not it's not a, it's not a surprise at all. The surprise is that they've stayed this long in these conditions. The only thing is it's it's not a teacher shortage. I mean, I know that's the popular term and that's what the media says every day, but I think that I think that phrase sort of falls into the teacher blaming narrative a little bit by saying, "Oh, well, there aren't enough of them or they don't want to come to us or whatever." Um there are plenty of potential qualified and aspiring teachers out there. Plenty who would be excellent and have been excellent in the classroom. So there's not a teacher shortage. There is a shortage of teaching jobs that properly treat, respect, and compensate skilled professionals such that they would want to be teachers in the first place. The people are out there. It's the support that's missing, and that can be remedied. Yeah. I, I think in many districts, the ex, you have to have a bachelor's degree, unless you're a state like Oklahoma, which we're giving substitute teaching certificates <laughs> by the yeah. handful. But there's also pretty much an expectation once you go into this field, you're going to get an advanced degree, and yet you're still going to make less than an average starting salary uh, in so many other fields that you could go into with an advanced degree. Yep, that's right. Penny was uh, an 18-year veteran teacher, and her salary was $47,000. A teacher in Texas told me there's no other career 
in which you can have two advanced degrees and still make less than $50,000. And, and, you know, these are veterans we're talking about. They are not, teachers are not paid enough. And it's not, it's not, it's not glib to throw that out and just be like, oh yeah, they need more money. It helps students too. Studies actually show that students' math and English scores are significantly higher in districts that pay teachers higher base salaries. So paying teachers isn't just going to benefit teachers, it's going to benefit everyone. The three teachers you followed, all three were very empathetic uh, people with their students. Can you give me a sense of how you honed in on that particular part of their teaching style? What was it that first attracted your attention to the three of them? Because all three of them had this way of making a connection with the student and really for problem students especially, uh, it was about making a connection with that student telling they were they were safe and that, you know, here are the expectations and a, a very mature, you know, knowing that outbursts are going to happen. They had uh, a very empathetic approach to helping that child feel safe in the classroom. Can you give a sense of how you first acknowledge that? Because you, so much of the book in, in following them in the classroom seems to focus on that particular skill. Yeah, I think that's a skill that a lot of teachers have. So I thought it was important to get across. And I'll give you some examples of it. Um, one thing that helped me hone in on that was that I started substitute teaching myself about four <laughs> years ago. Um, I started short-term substitute teaching. And then last academic year, uh, the day before August open house, a, a class opened up at a school where I had short-term subbed and they couldn't find a teacher. And so they asked me to long-term sub. So I ended up actually teaching third grade from... August open house all the way through winter break. Um, and so even before then, but also during that period, I ended up turning to Penny, Rebecca and Miguel and saying, hey, what would you do in this situation? <laughs> or what have you done when a student was like this? And they would tell me um, their tips that they were using with students at the time. And the most helpful ones, I could I could understand why they were so helpful. So I put them in the book and I'll give you an example. Penny had an autistic student uh, Robert, who would sometimes get really wound up in the classroom. And so to break his tension, this is what she would do. She would write on a piece of paper, hey, can you just talk to Robert for a second and then send him right back to me? He just needs a quick break. She would staple the paper and she would give it to Robert and say, Robert, can you do me a favor and run this down to Mrs. So-and-so for a minute? I, I need to give her some information. Um, he was excited because he felt like he was being um, you know, promoted to, to teach or help her to go do something. This was a, a sixth grader. She was able to break his feedback loop that was disrupting his learning and disrupting the classroom. He left. The teacher, you know, who receives it, opens the notes, sees what's up, says something to Robert, sends him right back. He comes back fine and ready to learn. So she told me that. I'm like, that's pretty brilliant. And then I had a similar situation. This wasn't with my third graders, but I, I had a similar situation where a student with um, some extra needs um, was getting very wound up in class. So I tried the same thing and I, I stapled that piece of paper and I said, Hey, can you just give them the, give the, run this down to the counselor for me? And he did. And when he came back, it was like a new student. He was ready to sit down and be on task again. I was like, Penny, that was brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> well, and obviously that time spent in the classroom gave you great insights to, to what these teachers are facing every day. 
Yeah, it told me more about what to ask them. For example, I subbed for a seventh and eighth grade special ed reading intervention class uh, a couple times. And I noticed that the banter among the students was just like it would be in a general ed class. And and I hadn't really thought about it that way before because some of these students had severe special needs. And so that led me to ask Miguel about the banter among the special ed students in his class. And that led to a lot of anecdotes and oh, this happened, and oh, by the way, a couple days ago, this happened. And, you know, by getting those specific details, you really are able to um, form a cohesive, comprehensive story that really makes readers feel like they're in the classroom with those students and that teacher. You know, what? something else that struck me was that, you know, you also see some teachers that are struggling in the classroom and you have these three teachers that are really amazingly good at their job. Rebecca, a little younger, I think, in the profession than Miguel and, and Penny. But here they are. They're working really hard. They have high degrees of skill. And yet there's no system in place to reward their expertise or to utilize that expertise with teachers that are having a hard time in the classroom. That's right. And studies show that mentorship programs are actually incredibly effective with teachers who are new or struggling. But again, it comes back to a question of time. In order to mentor teachers, and Miguel actually was a teacher mentor uh, the year I followed him, he just he just had no time to actually do the mentoring job because he was so overwhelmed uh, with his student with with his students and with his teaching responsibilities. They need the time to be able to mentor the teachers. So, so many teachers across the country told me that the job would be so much better if they had time during the day, a, a free period where they could go observe other teachers, collaborate with other teachers, um, you know, run something by another teacher, be mentored by or mentor another teacher. But uh, administrations aren't giving them the time for that. But yes, it would be so helpful. My guest today is Alexandra Robbins. She's an investigative journalist, and her book is titled The Teachers, A Year Inside America's Most Vulnerable, Important Profession. I love the fact that you put a little section in about school librarians. And right now in many states, there are a lot of political forces that are ganging up on school librarians. And I, I love the fact that you write that they're the most underestimated teacher in the building. And first of all, the very act of calling them a teacher is sort of unacknowledged by some in the profession and certainly a lot of people outside of the profession. They're grossly underestimated by the both the public and sometimes by their peers. Tell me what you learned about school librarians and how they, they help the health of a school. Yeah, it turns out studies show that students are more likely to graduate, master academic standards, and score higher on tests if their school has a full-time qualified librarian. As you said, school librarians are teachers, and they not only instruct students, but they are training the other teachers in education technology and grade-level resources. Uh, librarians do a ton of their actual library work on collection and development and cataloging and, and family outreach unpaid and outside of school hours. You know, people don't think of a librarian's job that way, but they they do a lot outside of teaching. Librarians are truly central to student success, yet 40% of K through 12 schools, 40% in our country don't have a full-time librarian and nearly a third of school districts don't have any librarians at all. We need more librarians. Yeah. And what was more disheartening is that sometimes administrators 
don't see that critical role of a librarian. They don't understand it. That's right. I think the figure was something like 90% of principals do not get any training in what their school librarian can do. And school librarians have advanced degrees. They, they can do so much more than people realize. No. Now, a portion of this book was during the COVID era. And uh, while you didn't really focus greatly on COVID, how did COVID affect the teachers you were following, the teach, other teachers you were interviewing? You know, I think at the outset, you said, you know, it, it only exacerbated problems that were already existing in the schools. How did you see that playing out? That's right. I didn't want to focus on COVID extensively because I thought to do so would be a disservice to the profession. There were problems with teachers' working conditions and with school systems before the pandemic. The pandemic just sort of laid them bare for uh, all to see. Um, I mean, COVID changed a lot, obviously, for, for everybody. Um, I think teachers felt a lot more of the disrespect and disregard than they had seen before, because now this wasn't just about parents sending children sick to school knowingly, and seven in 10 parents do that, by the way. This was about people not caring whether teachers got sick or whether they got something that could they that they could then pass on to a loved one who would then also get sick and before vaccines severely sick or or die there was just this general disregard for teachers uh health and well-being um now the covid pandemic also changed things because teachers told me students are much much more disruptive now than they were before the pandemic. And if you have just one disruptive student in a class, that can affect the entire class. Um, parents are more on edge, I think. Um, districts, uh, you know, they had money to during the COVID era for a little bit to do more, but now they're taking it back because the money's gone. And it's it's a mess. <laughs> it's a mess. And, and people forget that teachers are right there in the heart of it. Well, let me ask you, uh, you've sort of come up with some ideas for ways to affect American education. And we talked about one of those earlier is, is really providing a system of support that allows teachers to concentrate on making connections with the, the many students they might have in a, a large class or, uh, you know, a specialized class and focus on the teaching art, if you will. Uh, but what are some of the other suggestions uh, you think we need to really be taking part to and, and really devote funding to or or changing attitudes, I think, is a, a big part of it. Yeah. Teaching itself is incredibly meaningful and rewarding. But then districts sort of taint this beautiful, crucial work with unmanageable workloads, not enough support staff and low pay. Well, that, that's where we come in. Districts and administrators don't and politicians don't necessarily listen to teachers, but they do listen to parents. They do listen to the general community. Um, something easy to do is teachers need the public's trust. Teachers are the professionals who are trained and certified to educate students, and we need to let them do that without second-guessing them. Actually say in front of other adults, actually say in front of your kids, you know what, I trust your teacher, because if you model that respect and appreciation, that's going to improve the student's experience. And by the way, teachers know if parents are saying bad things about teachers at home, it comes across in the classroom. <laughs> Students are not quiet. You know, what happens at home does not stay at home. So anyway, um, we need more and we need louder pro-teacher voices. We can, we can lobby for all the things I talk about in the book, all these better working conditions for 
teachers and and pay attention to what your community's school board and superintendent are doing. Ask teachers how they feel about it, and then you can testify, email. It can be a you know a two minute email. It doesn't have to be a long email. Or start a petition supporting the teacher's stance. We need non educators to band along with educators to fix this school system issue. Alexandra Robbins, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Rich. Journalist and author Alexandra Robbins speaking with us here on Studio Tulsa. Her latest book is titled The Teachers, A Year Inside America's Most Vulnerable, Important Profession. It's published by Dutton. Well, that's Studio Tulsa for today. Our program is produced and edited by Scott Gregory. The views of our guests and commentators are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of KWGS or its licensee, the University of Tulsa. I'm Rich Fisher. Thanks for listening.